Welcome to Therapists Uncensored, a podcast where therapists freely speak their minds about real-life matters. Hey there. Welcome to Therapists Uncensored. We are so happy that you have found this podcast, and I think you've found a good one. It's interesting and, frankly, pretty sexy. Uh, This episode is about couples with unequal sexual desire, and it is hosted by Dr. Ann Kelly, and discussants include the podcast co-host Patty Allwell and Sue Marriott. So without further ado, let's get right to it. Thanks, Sue. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to talk about this. No pun intended, but I am excited to talk about this conversation because I think unequal sexual desire, why do I want to talk about it? You say it's common. I see, I think it is in most relationships we have an unequal sexual desire. And that's right. There's one pervert, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and one prude. <laughs> or at least that's how we end up feeling in either of those positions. That's exactly as you say. That's how people end up feeling. How people feel about having unequal sexual desires is a huge part of the whole process. And, and not only do they feel like a prude or a pervert, but the one who has the higher desire feels unloved because the partner doesn't want to have sex with them. And the one that doesn't feel like having sex, feels like, wow, maybe I'm not in love with my partner anymore. Yeah, they can really draw some insecurities or too much emphasis about it. Yeah. It's so true. Either that or just what's wrong with me that I'm not feeling these normal feelings or the feelings that I used to feel. I think the what's wrong with me is probably the biggest thing that I want to talk about today because I think unequal sexual desire is in most relationships that we come across. Um, if not all, I mean, what's the likelihood? Oh, I think it's universal. I think it's true. Um, because like- eventually in a, in a relationship you'll get there. I mean, even if it's temporary, right? Right. Yeah. People have different levels and the, the idea that some couple would be lucky enough to have the exact same level of desire. Except that in the beginning of a relationship, often it looks like we're the same, right? Because... There's a lot of sex, and we're always turned on, and so and we always <laughs> invited, and we always want it exactly. So we um, can't wait to get back to it. And right, right. But you we're know, preoccupied. But but over time in the relationship, then we go back to our normal levels. Which, which you know, I know honestly, if we didn't, I, I kind of laugh at this because there's a reason it has to be unequal. Because if it wasn't, we would get nothing done in the world. <laughs> That's right. It's a population control for some of us as well as we have to get out there in the world and produce and be productive and if we had the exact same sexual desires as we did in the first two years that would be also lovely but also a little scary for the world but how that gets played out in relationship is one reason I want to talk about it because it feels important to try to to bring it into a a conversation um, in between couples and I'm hoping that this podcast helps um, couples talk about it because um, what happens as we move along and we start noticing the unequal sexual desires, oftentimes couples don't talk about it. We just mentioned, you know, one person says, what's wrong with me? Or the other one says, why don't you want? You, you know, it becomes an issue or a conflict so, so, so quickly. And, um, and for me, as I notice it, is that how the unequal sexual desire, as it develops, how it's handled in a relationship can hugely impact how it actually, in, in my opinion, plays out in the relationship. Because how two people begin to feel about it and talk about it can hugely... Or not talk or, about it. Good point, Patty. Or not talk about it can usually tilt 
how it develops and, and, and uh, intensifies. And I see sexuality like a dance. And as, as one part, your partner shifts, the other partner shifts and it keeps going. Well, here's a great example is you start noticing, let's say you're the one with uh, less sexual desire than your partner and you start noticing that and you're going out on a date and you're coming home and you're going oh my gosh i know he or she's going to want to have sex i just don't know if i'm in the mood and oh my gosh you may go to the what's wrong with me in your own head or he or she's going to get angry now i don't know about you guys but either one of those internal dialogues not so sexy not likely to generate a, a response in your own body nor your partner's body, because then your partner thinks, oh, if, you know, my gosh, I want sex, and I don't know if he or she's going to want it. So we have this dance of a dialogue that, as we know through the talking that we've been doing in other podcasts about how our bodies interface with the, our, the chemicals in our body and the way our brain works, mm-hmm. our minds, the, our minds um, as that starts interfacing, it also and affects our, how our, our body's going to respond. Right. So are the, you trying our, to say that if I'm worried, I'm not going to be kicking out the right chemicals for a <laughs> hot, sexy night? Exactly. Well put. <laughs> not so sexy. Right. Because our mind is the biggest sexual organ yes, that we absolutely. have. So when our mind is off going wacko then uh, <laughs> that's so true wacko and either direction either direction yeah the anticipation the one that has more sexual desire the anticipation of rejection the anticipation of if i'm going to go towards and is it going to be received that's really really difficult and that's stressful. Very, very stressful produces cortisol not so oxytocin producing as we've mentioned in other parts of our podcast yeah, so our mind starts to produce ways that makes that whole interaction start to feed on itself. And oh, that's a great point. So kind of what we do with it, it's going to either exacerbate the tilt, make it more severe. Exactly. Um, or perhaps we could figure some things out that would help. Exactly. Yeah, and even if it doesn't change the amount of desire, it could damage the relationship which mm-hmm. in lots of different ways. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, because so many emotional tensions can draw out of it that can last to the next day and the next day and then feed on itself. So what am I supposed to do if I'm caught either in the um, not-that-into-it place or the pursuer? That's a great question. And, you know, a step before what I want, before we start talking about what to do... Okay. I think the deeper you can understand it and not generate even inside your body. So I just want to fix it. So <laughs> you just, you just want to have a climax here, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Let's get to it. Y'all can tell which one I sit on, right? <laughs> I'm a little overeager. Give me the, give me the cliff notes. <laughs> well, I think I think in the process it might even be helpful to talk about sexuality and um and desire and how it develops and waxes and wanes just so that we develop a deeper understanding for ourselves. And in particular, if we talk about it um, for women and maybe just talk about it, the differences that some women experience as a men, again, not universal. We have, we don't make any um, assumptions, but women's bodies do have a different way of responding to sexuality than men's. Um, and so whether you're in a heterosexual or a same sex relationship, the same, the same things play out to be true. And, um, so we talk about Well, and let me throw in one other thing. If we learn so much about sexuality through media 
and what we see in the movies and what we see um, in uh, TV and how those relationships play out. And we are led to believe that sexuality, the minute we start kissing, even though we're eight, 10 years into a relationship, we start kissing our wife or our husband, our whole body turns on, we end up on the floor and everybody is in the same spot. And so we believe, I think so many people believe that's the way our sexuality is supposed to play out. So when our body doesn't respond like that, we think something's wrong. And I think, um, you know, if we could coin the first two years of the relationship as we spoke about it, we all sometimes kind of... Sometimes it's first two years, but sometimes it's like the first two weeks or well, two months before, <laughs> you know, before you start, right, start before feeling comes... that. But if we talk about the difference between men and women's bodies a little bit, Again, don't want to be stereotypical because I know it varies, but if we think about the way a man's body reacts to excitement in a woman's body, there's a, there's a very obvious difference. Generally, when a man it doesn't take often all that much for once a man gets excited to get an erection, and once he has an erection, it doesn't take typically a lot to maintain that. Once a man gets excited, um, there's not a lot of thinking generally that is involved in maintaining that. Now, of course, if they start anticipating getting rejected, that could definitely, or there's all sorts of other issues that can come up. So we're talking generalities, but because a man can respond pretty quickly to sexuality, um, in my experience, most women, um, after the first period of excitement isn't as, as immediate and it ebb and flows a lot more for women. A woman could be having a glass of wine at dinner and feel very turned on and very excited and on the way home gets a call from somebody and their the babysitter. Sex, the babysitter. <laughs> the sexuality shifts on a dime and may come back and ebb and flow. Is that y'all's experience in talking with people? Uh, I certainly think that uh, some men and women operate that way, but you know, there's lots of men that show up in sex therapist's offices. Mm-hmm. Oh, erectile dysfunction and you know really concerned right. about their sexuality so I don't I just don't want to make it so universal because we certainly see lots of variation across the spectrum absolutely absolutely I don't want to make it universal it's what I was sort of was suggesting before when I was saying not across the board and men have different issues that affect their ability to feel excited and their ability to maintain that um, but if we're talking about generalities in terms of bodies I, I think a lot of media sort of suggests that the minute penetration happens for women, that that physiological experience should match what a man experiences during penetration. And I'm not so sure I, that generally across the board is not universal. Yeah, that's right. And so um, I like the point you made right there, Anne, about the, um, so whatever journey the man, like, just to use a heterosexual example, right? <clears throat> so whatever journey the man goes on to get excited and then to, um, like, that the moment of penetration for him adds to excitement for sh- most likely, right? That's for many men. For many Not men, all. right. Um, whereas for women, what you're saying is that we're supposed to mm-hmm. squeal and be delighted and that is the pinnacle of what we've been dying, you know, uh, longing for is to be penetrated, right? Um, but that you, I think you're suggesting that it doesn't necessarily work that way as as um, quickly for women, or right. as um, oh, what's the word? Um, 
as immediate. As immediate, right. Right, and it, and it can, for many women it can, but but there's this process to, of, for many women, the process of sort of allowing themselves to get to a place to be ready for that as well. And that what goes on in the relationship, if a woman is ready and is, is, is more open-chested and ready for that. What then, do you mean by open-chested, Anne? What I mean is... It's a great word, but I'm not sure I get all of it. The ability to feel relaxed and to feel able to turn towards your partner and feel vulnerable. And I think when a woman is open-chested, all sorts of sexuality can come out. And certainly that's not promoted if your sexual desire is not quite as high or if you're worried about not being there or disappointing your partner. Um, so it's sort of about safety and receptivity? Exactly. Good way to okay. state it. Safety and receptivity. If, if, if we have unequal sexual desire and we start feeling worried or stressed or thinking something's wrong with us, it's a way of creating, as we were talking about a few minutes ago, a body of tension, not of open-chestedness. And so certainly that is not necessarily going to promote our whole entire internal system being as receptive to penetration or anything else. And so the more couples, I think, are heterosexual or same-sex are engaged in the process of um, helping to create that open-chestedness. We kind of laugh about it as, you know, women need foreplay and men are ready to go, but that's not exactly what I'm speaking about. Well, I think that in some ways you're uh, bringing up like different kinds of desire. So there's genital excitement, which is one kind of desire that both men and women have or don't have or what have you, right? But, um, and then there's this open-chested piece that you're talking about. Is, it, it feels to me like maybe another kind of desire um, that, you know, one can sort of longing for connection, longing for connection. Also, like the the feeling of openness and safety, which is I think somewhat independent from the genital sexuality. Definitely. Right. And so, um, women can just be genitally sexual mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. conquer <laughs> sex and whether whoever their partners are, um, and and men as well. Um, but then there's this other piece, you know, in, in looking at a long term relationship that our attachment systems get activated and therefore that affects our feeling of safe, you know, the, the open chestedness that you're talking about that on another plane affects whether or not we're connecting or not connecting. Exactly. And, and as you say, that so it kind of reminds me, it's getting back to the unequal sexual desire. If, oh, let's just say in this case, specifically the example of being a woman having less, although certainly right. many oftentimes it's the other way around, but if a woman's sexual desire is a little bit less than their partner's, um, if they start feeling something's wrong with them and they should have the exact same sexual desire and something's wrong, then they can get distracted in that process. Or they can fake it. Or, oh my God, this is true. And then they, they learn to fake it, which then the power of association comes out. That's one thing I want to talk about. We are all Pavlovian on some level. This is such an interesting topic because of the multiple levels of vulnerability that people in relationships are sharing, or in some cases not sharing. So if, say, let's say you and I are having sex, Patty, and I'm not as into it as you are, but I don't want to hurt your feelings, then I'm going to fake having an orgasm um, in order, you know, to avoid a lot of these feelings, right? We're just going to solve this problem real quick. (laughs) Um, But I think your point, Anne, is that 
um, if I do that very much, then I'm actually like um, decreasing it, your it desire. It decreases my desire because I'm like, oh, do I have, and like kind of like what you were saying earlier, do I have the energy to do that? And, mm-hmm. and in a sense, just to take care of you. And instead of, like that becomes the association with sex instead of, ooh. Instead <laughs> well, of so I'm gonna, it gets paired in a negative right. way. Yes. Yeah, and that's a wonderful point because I know um, Esther Perel says that desire is not politically correct. If you're, you have to be selfish to have an orgasm. So if you're paying attention to your partner and, oh, is he or she feeling comfortable? Oh, am I hurting them? Oh, you're not going to have an orgasm. It's impossible, biologically, <laughs> to be totally focused on your partner's comfort and I don't mean feelings that, and whether they're hurting their feelings. Right. I don't. Mm-hmm. I do not mean that we aren't loving and compassionate, but at that moment of orgasm, you have to pay attention to yourself. You have to go for what you want. <laughs> and if it's just such a great way to say, it. and if what you want isn't matching and you think I don't have the sexual desire right now that my partner does and I should so I'm just going to work on you know having my partner have satisfaction and then in this through to get through it quicker then you're developing a power of association that exacerbates and decreases your sexual desire for the next time right yeah and you had before the tape was rolling you had uh, mentioned an example a heterosexual example of how that works where that the man begins to notice that she's not as into it, and his response is to hurry. Oh yes, that's a, if because we are so perceptive to each other, and when you can feel your partner not quite there, sometimes um, there's all sorts of ways you can react. But sometimes a man might hurry and try to rush, or the woman might even want him to hurry to rush because they want the one with more sexual desire. To be pleased and to get the orgasm, and that could be really loving. But but if a man is rushing, it may be the assumption that they can't bring their partner along, and they can. They can by knowing the sexual desire is unequal, but attending to it and slowing down, and not be focused just on on penetration for one, but to to bring the partner's mind along. And I, you know, we we've, we've been talking around this. Let's talk directly. See, when you said, what do I do? We have to attend to our partner's mind and body, which sounds a little different than what you were saying, Patty, but not. Let me get around to that. And that is, if I know my partner, I could feel my partner's wanting to have sex for me, but I'm not, I'm, the ability to pull away and shift and engage the mind through verbal talk, play. through verbal play, to pull away, maybe in a, to be direct, if, if a man's penetrating to pull out naturally, and playfully and allow some element of pursuit to happen Mm. because one of the things that has to happen for sexual desire is we have to have a little bit of of pursuit a little bit of unavailability a little bit of across the room and if one has more desire than the other the person that has less desire never gets that opportunity for pursuit and we could talk about that more just in general in terms of the dance around it oh, but, I but like even in the moment the, right. the idea of pursuing so that like if he pulls away a little bit that in this in this one example then um it might you know if, if i'm back on my heels mm-hmm. i'm not gonna i'm gonna feel his desire but i'm not gonna feel my own yes and um but if he pulls back a little bit um then i'm gonna feel like whoa whoa don't go mm-hmm. like i'm right 
um, let's do this together. You know, like, oh, wait, oh, there's my desire. Like, as the, mm-hmm. as the space gets opened for mm-hmm. me, then I can find it. You can find your own desire. But if every time I look, there's, you know, I'm, I'm getting elevator eyes or, mm-hmm. you know, like, am I going to have my chance? Am I going to have my chance? You're saying and that then the person who's being pursued, it's just all both of them can feel is his desire. Yes, in that moment, in that, yes. And for him to pull away some, not in a rejecting her no, feeling no. way, no, no, no. but in a playful, eye-to-eye, open-chested way, and maybe maybe create a sense of, but the, the, one of the most important things is to not make your partner partner's um, lack of desire in that moment to be the issue. Right. To, to or be, pathologize. To pathologize it or something's wrong. And I think so often that's so hard. I know what we're talking about is difficult because you want to be desired, both partners do, but to pull away and allow allow the playfulness in the moment to be there and say, I don't think you're quite into it. Hey, you know, and make it more playful and, and more understanding rather than to just come so up So you're saying kind of um, moving from the genital um, arousal to the open-hearted arousal. Exactly. Like, so this person's not generally aroused, so let me go heart to heart. Mm-hmm. And by going heart to heart, that we leave space then to meet again with mm-hmm. genitally. Like, yes. Well, and the research that, um, that sort of addresses this says that most of us feel desire and then we start pursuing our partner and stimulating our bodies, right? But some people, a, a subset of people, don't feel the desire till they're stimulated. We sort of think it works in one direction. So, exactly. so if I'm the person that doesn't feel the desire, I go to that place of worry, like what's wrong with me? What's wrong with my relationship? As if desire exists in and of itself. Right, yes. and what happens is that decreases my interest in sex and it decreases my ability to enjoy sex. Where if I could understand that, hey, maybe I need to like get into this make a little it, bit. Make it. Well, it's a little <laughs> bit that way. Get you know, start to play around and see if I'm exactly. desirous of my partner at that moment. And and I think the all or nothing kind of idea about this that if we play around a little bit, I have to have sex is is really a false paradigm for some people they don't feel the desire until they start playing around that's a wonderful point i think the research that you're talking about has to do with the high t and low t um and which has to do with unequal desire um so that we naturally had and the t standing for testosterone and so jeff lutz actually has this great metaphor of high t and low t folks which is that um if i'm low t i'm Wait, if I'm high tea, I'm like a, a gas stove. You know, one click and I'm burning. And um, I'm hot, ready to go. So the low tea is more like an electric stove. You know, we turn it on, we wait, we wait, we wait. And, you know, but once I get heated up, I'm just as hot and ready to go as my high tea person. But that exactly what you're saying, that sometimes the activity has to happen first in order to stimulate it instead of desire happening first. Right, and so what What the partner and the person that has the lower desire have to do is be willing to play with the idea of might not go where you want, 
but it might. Right. And take the take the shame away of I don't feel it before we start. That's exactly right. Oh, take the shame and the pressure of I don't feel it before we start, and allowing the process to develop and the the slow burn. And that there's a lot of ways. And that's the fun about having a long term relationship. That to let that slow burn be a lot of different ways. And that's when we get to your point about what do we do about it, to talk about that in either during sex or not during sex, is how does that slow burn develop? And to have creativity in that and to have no shame in that and to let that be part of the fun. And curiosity. Oh, curiosity. I think curiosity right. around sex is so important. The idea that I don't know what I'll feel like when we start. Let's see. Right. And, it, and it won't only be um, orgasm driven. Right. Yes. We might not end up in an orgasm, but we could end up all kinds of wrapped as pretzels with each other and fall asleep. And, and taking awesome. the pressure of the orgasm away for both partners and with a low T, you know, not having an orgasm but not having shame around it, who knows what we're going to feel tomorrow because we could get stimulated and we went to bed without shame and without guilt and excitement. And who knows what will develop. But you know what? I want to actually stand up for the high T for a second because we're talking about how to, to tend to the low T. But the high T, I love Jeff Lute's uh, description in that, we all also sometimes feel a need to be wanted and to have desire. And when you have the higher desire, it, it's something that you don't get to have, a, that, that you have a longing for. So of course you're looking at your partner and you wish that not only would they want sex, but they would want you, and that you could yes. feel that. Mm-hmm. And that's such an important part of the relationship. And if we think desire should be expressed only when we feel it in that one way of this intense genital stimulation, and we're waiting for that, and we don't have that, we forget to express attraction and desire in all these other flirt. ways. Toward, flirt towards our partner <laughs> and tell them how attractive they are and how much you want them. And you can tell your partner that you want them even though your genital body isn't screaming excitement. And I think we wait for that and be, and think, oh, well, that's when I'll express desire, but I don't have it. I also think that the person who has the lower desire is afraid if I express my attraction exactly. to you, you're going to want to have sex. <laughs> I'm going to get you turned on, and oh my God, then I'll have to deal with that again. That's a, that, that so often happens so that then they withhold that, and that in and of itself becomes an issue in a relationship. And you'll often hear the one with higher desires, it's not even that I always want to have sex, I just want to feel wanted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she stopped touching me, she used to kiss me on my neck, he used to hold my hand when we were out, whatever the... Whatever the things are that have gone away, because the person with the lower desire is like, eh, I don't want to get that started. Exactly. And you know, another thing comes to mind about specifically about same-sex couples, which is um, when you when you have two women, you have this stereo, what you're, what you're describing. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and again, this is we're talking about gender roles, but that they it matters related to us getting together, and so. When um, usually women aren't socialized to be the pursuer and to be the invader, to be the, you know, the, the one in that high desired position um, for very long. Because then, you know, we're so aware of um, making the other person uncomfortable. So what will typically happen um, if there's a shift, so, so we have an unequal desire, um, but rather than um, staying in a pursuit position, 
often the woman will lower her desire, her natural desire to match her partner's desire level. And so the idea behind this is that we want, I think, to promote really being mindful if that's what you actually want to do instead of just automatically moving into the position where you're not invading. That's a really good point. That's a very good point. Whereas with men in a heterosexual relationship, men are socialized, or in a same-sex male relationship, men are socialized to be the pursuers. So they they will pursue more often, according mm-hmm. to research, and so the sex is tends to be higher frequency because the pursuit is there, um, but not necessarily with women. Um, the sex is less frequent at times, but it is reported as more satisfactory. And I think that is because of some of what you're talking about, about this open-heartedness. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So it's what's good about this, I think, is knowing the different positions that, again, they're not specifically related to gender, but we're, we're talking about them in gender terms to be able to sort of clump it out and, and talk about it. But if you, so if you're in the uncom- being uncomfortable to pursue, rather than just not pursuing, we might really want to, um, Explore that. Explore that. Explore Explore that. Yes. That's right. See what it because like. what, what you might want to do is ask your partner, do you want me to give up on this? Would you like me to, like, is that what you actually want? And usually the partner's going to go, no, that's not actually mm-hmm. what I mean for you to do. Like, this is on my, I want, I want to have sex in my relationship. So let's not, you know, agree not to, <laughs> or, um, or, or, or have to have everything lined up perfectly before we do, for exactly the point you were making, Patty of maybe maybe the desire will come after we begin. Well, right. I'm not looking for it to be exactly lined up. And I think part of what you're bringing up, Sue, that's so important, in, and again, getting to the how-tos, is that um, for humans, our, like you mentioned before, our minds are our biggest sexual or- organs. And that to think about and to get to play with different roles and say, I'm not used to being the pursuer. What would it be like to be the pursuer? What would it be like to be able to pursue my partner and to try on this different role that would actually probably shock our partner, you know. <laughs> right. And let me get back to the sort of the high T again, the one with higher desire. Yeah, that's good. One of the things that's so important is that that when you have more desire, and of course, if your partner sort of expresses a little bit of desire, it's really hard pressed to say, "Hey, don't always act on that." Because you're saying, "Are you kidding me? I don't get sex enough. My partner's willing and wanting. Why would I wait?" <laughs> But it, it, it is really important every once in a while to go, you know, I like it, having fun, but I don't think anymore right now. And because what happens there is it allows your partner to have that, as we were speaking, that space to pursue and not think it is always going to lead to sex and that there is going to be some diversity and some ability and some room for pursuit. So it is important for the one with a high desire to not always be just, you know, ready and willing and waiting because it's kind of sexy right. to to have to pursue and be the one that is the assertive one. That reminds me of a a theory that Jack Marin, I think it's Jack Marin, put forward that um, desire is interest plus obstacle. Yes. Equals (laughs) desire. (laughs) So if you don't have a little bit of an obstacle. You gotta have a little bit of an obstacle. You're not gonna have much desire. It's It's sort of similar to what Esther Perel says, which is, that you need a little distance mm-hmm. to feel your desire. Mm-hmm. And whether you think of distance as the obstacle in this case, mm-hmm. you know, it's sort of like... It's like if, space. Yeah, if everything is available. You know, if, if, you were, if you can go to the buffet 
24 hours a day and have as much food as you want and as any kind of food that you want, it's far less interesting than when you have to think about it, go to the kitchen and cook a little bit, you know, and then have this. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's you know, you can get oversaturated there. So what you're saying, Patty, is if you have a higher sexual desire, how do you not present yourself as just an open buffet? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things, if you imagine you have the higher sexual desire and you actually turn to your partner and give him or her just this awesome back rub that was really teasy and wonderful, then kissed him on the ear and said, good night, sweetie, and turned around. Oh, yeah. You that know that I mean? would go well. That would go that well. That would go well. <laughs> right? That would get there's, a thumbs up right there's there. There's like, and, and then maybe... <laughs> exactly. Then maybe he or she thinks, oh gosh, I know you want sex, and da da da. And they pursue you, said, no, I don't want to, I'm a little sleepy. But you make it loving and not rejecting, but a little playful, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe through note writing, mm-hmm. et cetera. But again, the use of your mind and your body interfacing. Or, or actually, what I was imagining you were going to say was, um, well, I kind of want to, but you know, I don't think you're totally into it right now. So I, I want to wait. I'm going to wait. Exactly. <laughs> I'm going to wait. Because I want this to be good for both of us. I want this to be good for both of us, and I want you to be able to be into it. And the most important part, if I can stress nothing else, is the stress non... It. I'm going to stress it, girl. <laughs> is the non-shaming dynamic for either one. Yes. To not shame the one that has higher desire right. as being obnoxious and intrusive, and not shaming the one that has a lower desire. But to be able to go, not tonight, because I don't think you're in the... And I want to wait till you are. Or want to play around into not if it is in a heterosexual relationship or, or, or two men to not have the penetration be the only aspect of sex to allow there be all sorts of other ways to, to bring open chested and playfulness and leave that out and consider that very sexy and having had sex mm-hmm. you know because there's not penetration that doesn't mean mm-hmm. according to Clinton that sex didn't happen <laughs> right so we could have had sex and not had penetration or orgasm or or orgasm thank you yeah and it could be very sexy and playful Mm -hmm. right thinking of our whole bodies as a sexual we talk about our mind talking about genitals but our hands are bad like you were saying our feet or Um, so that it really opens up um the idea of sensuality and eroticism and eroticism Mm -hmm. so that the person with the low t um, you know, instead of just having this one tiny runway to get to them, mm-hmm. and then it's not going to happen very often because, you know, how often does that line up? But if we open the whole field, then mm-hmm. the massage or the touching of the hair or what have you. Or the eye contact. The, the, eye the contact deep, deep is eye contact That, that person over can feel dinner. that as sensual and mm-hmm. sexual so they're not feeling so deprived. Yes. Or the sexy text or the note left in the bathroom mm-hmm. when you go to work, or whatever it is. And which makes me think of another thing that often, particularly in long-term relationships, <clears throat> um, you know, I'm comfortable with this, this circle of activities, and you're comfortable with this circle of sexual activities, and then where we cross over that little space there, that's what we do. <laughs> and we do that all the time, we do that a lot. And, and it's um, repetitive and it's predictable, and it's which exactly, is the inherent suggestion that this can... That's that's right. That's the it's, recipe for the lack of sexual desire. Right. Well, you lo- you'll end up losing your desire because where's the novelty? Where's the space that y'all were talking about? Mm-hmm. Um, where's the, There's no pursuit. 
And it becomes orgasm-focused. Which is really funny because we talk about, in this podcast, a lot about safety and needing safety. But sexuality is the exception to that, right? Exactly. We also need a little heartbeat. (laughs) We need a little... um, Novelty, a little risk. A little risk, right. A little, not fear, but like um, excitement, um, difference. Right. Um, Because if we get that, unlike, for a long-term relationship, unlike trust, which as we are just close for years, our trust grows naturally... Um, sexuality is the opposite. We actually have to really think about this and work on this. So going back to the Venn diagram really quickly, um, there's things you can do to separate that out and get or to re to redo your diagrams. Like what have you not tried but are willing to? You know, what are your absolute no's? What are you possibly open to but you've never done? And then of course you you have your comfort areas. And then do it redoing that and re having those kinds of conversations. Um, might be another way of sort of the how-to the how-tos. of um, reinvigorating mm-hmm. it, even just verbally and talking about it, about what we, you know, what might be on our plate going forward. Mm-hmm. I also think that it's really surprising how many couples never talk about sex. Mm-hmm. Or when they talk about sex, they say, do you want to do it? and that's the level of conversation so I think even just encouraging a lot more discussion and and not necessarily at 10 o'clock when you've climbed into bed together but sometime over coffee Mm -hmm. or when you're having a glass of wine to talk about what your sex life is like and what things are exciting to you and not exciting I think that's a great point Patty and to be able to make that a safe conversation and one of the ways to do that, I think, especially on the topic of unequal sexual desires, to be able to talk about it, it's kind of hard to be the one, to be able to listen to your partners, it's kind of hard to be the one with all the desire. Or it's kind of hard to be the one that has the lack of desire. Right, having empathy right? for the other yeah, position. And, and to be able to talk about it and connect and say, of course that would be hard. You know, instead of, because so often we defend and we feel it as a blame. Mm-hmm. So if a partner's going, I, oh, I'm the only one that ever pursues then the other person oftentimes will say, that's not true, I did this, or, well... Don't yes. you remember on Valentine's Day right. 2014? <laughs> I or, or, what the heck, how can I pursue, I'm doing 50,000 things during the day and right, I'm exhausted. But you're, but you're defensive. Yeah, I'm exhausted, that's why I don't pursue. And so it's so easy to say, through a defense, as if you should want to pursue. It should be that way, that you should have the same desire. And you're doing it wrong. And you're doing it wrong. And so how you approach your partner... In, in, in a safe way to be able to go, of course it would be hard. And So this really reminds me of some research that John Gottman did where he talks about the difference between complaining and criticizing. So criticizing is saying the fault for this lies in my partner. Exactly. You're the problem. You don't want to have sex. You won't do this. You, you know. and, and complaining, on the other hand, which he calls the anecdote, antic antidote, sorry, antidote <laughs> for, um, for criticizing is, oh, you know, I'm kind of disappointed that we didn't have sex. I really kind of felt sort of aroused. And, you know, it's really taking back the ownership for your own feelings. And then your partner can have some empathy for that. Yeah, I know you're disappointed. I wish I was up to it today. As opposed to like, you know, having to defend themselves about, about I, it's not my problem. I'm not, no, you're the one that Mm-hmm. You know, it's really, it's good to be able to get your feelings out, you know, because yes, you probably are disappointed if you're the one that has the higher desire. 
because you do desire your partner. And that's something your partner can say, oh, I know that feels bad. And oh, I'm glad you desire me. You know, that's such an important, and it, that is a, that probably is the biggest challenge that we can see across the board in relationships is how to be able to state what's going on inside of you without making it um, a directive towards your partner failing you. And even sometimes partners do a beautiful job of complaining, but that doesn't mean the partner doesn't hear it as a criticism. And that is a real challenge. Totally. That's actually what I was going to say was even if, um, so again, going back to your, your my sex life, Patty, um, <laughs> but if you were to come to me and say that you were disappointed, that even if you do a really nice job, I can imagine, again, going right back into, just because I already feel bad. Hearing, I disappointed or, you. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So so on one hand, the soft startup is important, but then also really being able to hear, you're just being, you're just saying you're disappointed. Yeah. You're not saying I'm a horrible person. Yeah. <laughs> you're not saying I'm all those I, things. And I'm said. not saying I'm disappointed in you. Right. That's a very big distinction. I'm talking about my feelings. Right. You know, and and what's happening inside me, and and even if it is hard, but isn't it my responsibility to take care of your feelings? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Not not in a mature adult relationship. Oh, that's the problem. (laughs) (laughs) However, I don't think any of us are having a mature adult relationship where we're feeling insecure and and uncertain. So I I agree with being able to say it that way, but. I'm also a favor. I'm, I'm agreeing totally with Gottman. And that is, not only do you say, like, I was disappointed, but throw your partner a bone while you do it. Throw your partner a bone in that, um, so we don't want to talk to you. I'm a little disappointed that we didn't have sex, but I know you you would want to have sex with me, with me and you're attracted. You know, I know that you love me and want that, and we're just different right now, so I just need to whine a little bit. So what you're bringing up is super important, so important that I want to have keep talking about this on another podcast where that we really talk about how to not hit the back of the brain of our partner or just, it's not, we're talking in the language right now on purpose about couples, but this applies to all relationships. It applies to all relationships, all sort how we communicate with the people we love so we don't destroy the relationship. Or even just, right, or even destroy it or even just begin to have little rifts. Yeah. Um, like disconnections that are preventable. So I propose that we meet again um, and that we pick up the conversation, particularly related, like we can go over the Gottman stuff, the stuff, the, the research on what makes relationships work um, with the Take eye, in. with the eye mm-hmm. towards um, not just romantic relationships. Are y'all good with that? I think Does that's that great. Let's Love to it. see you next Saturday. Let's meet again. <laughs> to our website at therapistuncensored.com. Check out our show notes and make sure to subscribe to receive updates about future episodes. And thank you very much for listening. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly, Patty Alwell, and Sue Marriott. Cameron Lindsay edits the show. <laughs>